Good morning and welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host, Emily Dieter, and today I'm joined by Professor Patrick McNeil, who's the Executive Dean of Medicine and Health Sciences at Macquarie University. Um, he studied a, a medicine at the University of Tasmania, after which he moved to Sydney to specialise in rheumatology, um, and he then did a PhD in immunology. Um, he then went on to do a postdoc at Harvard, very impressive. Um, and has been a clinical academic for 25 years, um, worked at UNSW and is now here at Macquarie and he has a lot more accolades to his name that I don't have time to go over today. Welcome Patrick. Thanks very much Emily. And we also have today with us uh, Demiana Hanna who's one of our MPH students and one of my podcast assistants for the next couple of months. Say hi Demi. Hi everyone. Would you like to start with the first question? Sure. I'd like to ask um, Professor McNeil um, what does actually a, for our listeners out there, um, what does an executive dean, what's his role in the university and particularly the faculty? So um, the dean of, of uh, medical schools varies across universities, depends on whether uh, the school is simply uh, a department within a bigger organisational structure like a, a faculty or a division. Um, and the term executive means that you're part of the university executive. So some deans of medical schools are not part of the university executive, some are, and if they are, they're, they're usually called the executive dean. So the executive dean of medicine and health sciences means I have responsibility for um, the, uh, the activities at Macquarie University that encompass the educational and research programs in medicine and in a number of the health sciences for example, including physiotherapy, public health, uh, uh, undergraduate entry, clinical sciences. Um, yeah. And do you still get to do any of your own research? Or are you too busy now? Yeah, <laughs> I, I've left my uh, research and clinical careers behind when I took this job. Right. It's, it's really um, very difficult to, you know, as a clinical academic, I've spent a lifetime balancing looking after patients. Um, teaching science and medical students and, and doing medical research. So I know how to time manage and balance, but I decided <laughs> I took this job with the, uh, with the very uh, ambitious expansion plans that Macquarie has for this faculty yeah. that it wasn't possible to, to, to uh, manage those, uh, those things as well. That sounds very sensible. And can I ask what first interested you in medicine um, when you sort of first decided to study health? What, what really drew you to it? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people end up in medicine somewhat accidentally, although probably less so these days. But uh, uh, so I, I can't point to a, a particular thing. Uh, you know, it, it was a combination of things of some, you know, school friends, school friends wanted to do medicine, we wanted to do medicine together. Obviously, you wouldn't want to do that unless you, you had some affinity to, to work with yeah. people to understand, you know, biology and the human body. They're the sort of thing, reasons that people want to get into medicine. It's either a motivation because they want to uh, help people or they're interested in in how how the body works or, or how, you know, why people get sick. Often people who want to study medicine have had a personal experience. I had some you know health issues as a child so I think you know I'd have been exposed to to, to, uh, to hospitals and doctors and that probably subconsciously had a factor. Yeah and then how did you decide to specialize in rheumatology did you just fall into that or was it a real passion for you? No it, it again you know uh, I fell into that somewhat because um, when I was 
the way you specialize in a lot of things after you graduate from medicine is, uh, at least in, in the specialties of what we call internal medicine, is you do a, a general internal medicine training and then you decide to specialize in one area. Um, and when you're doing the general uh, study and exams, uh, often you have mentors who are particularly helpful in, in mm. getting you through the exams. And it just happened that, that someone, uh, one, one, a particularly special mentor was a rheumatologist. And, uh, and so he, he, you know, he, he exposed me, I suppose, to, to more of the specialty. I, I'd, I'd actually done some rheumatology training in my, in my general junior training as a postgraduate doctor. And so I knew I knew the kind of general field, um, but I think it was he was the inspiration to to, to go into that. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent! And it's something we've touched on before in this in this podcast is about mentoring. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see that as important throughout people's careers? And if so, why? I know it's something we've been working on. Um, Janaki, um, who I interviewed the other week, has been a mentor with the Franklin Women Mentoring Program. Um, is it something we do here at the university in a wider? Um, Scale or? Yeah, look, I think most mentoring is informal. Um, I think universities and, and institutions and corporations have recognised the value of mentoring or the value of, of the informal networks of mentoring that do exist and have started to put in more formal mentoring programs like the Franklin uh, program. Um, I mean, I think it's critical, and I think if you look at a lot of people who are successful, they will be able to identify, um, often not ahead of time, but when they look back, uh, influential people who have assisted them develop their, uh, you know, their, their careers. Um, and mentoring is, I don't think in, in my mind, is, is um, it often works better when it's informal, because it's, it develops when you as a more junior person recognize someone who's got qualities that you admire yeah that's generally how a mentorship um, relationship develops you recognize someone more senior than you that has qualities you admire and then the senior person recognize qualities in you as someone who works for them or or, or you know you have a relationship with them that um, you know that they see qualities perhaps in them at a younger age and some somebody that they would like to develop because a lot of people actually get a lot of value in assisting and you know more junior people within their profession or in their in their discipline yeah absolutely um and we might just change um tact now is it tag john Calder <laughs> always tells me that i say that wrong um i might move over to the the mph program the marshall public health um that's running here and i i guess i'm just wondering how you see public health is fitting in and its importance in the faculty yeah, so look, I think um, it's it, well. That's a that's a long question. <laughs> Sorry, I get that a lot. I need to work you know, on you it. You could. Well, no, there's many there's many aspects. I guess the thing about public health is that it, the word the word means different things to different people, and you know that's why often you'll see the term population health is, is yeah. used as a different term, but. I guess what it all boils down to is public health is a very cross-disciplinary discipline. Yeah. Mm. Uh, you know, in fact, it's not even a discipline. It's it's a um, it's an intersection of, of yeah. many disciplines, and and that is a you know to me that's a that's a very rich thing to have within your faculty, particularly uh, as going back 
you know, to, to medical schools and medical faculties. Often medical schools are very monocultural. Yeah. They can be as little as very medical-centric, very doctor-centric, and virtually all of the staff are, are medical doctors or, or, or scientists who do research. Um, many medical schools in Australia, many medical schools in the world are like that. Uh, some universities, medical and health science faculties, will also have you know, nursing schools or pharmacy schools or physiotherapy schools. I'm using the word school as in academic department or school. Different universities use different words. I think the more disciplines you have in, a, um, in a, an organisational unit, whether you call it a faculty, um, the, the richer the, the, the culture, the richer the, the, the educational programs, the richer the research. So, um, so I'm quite keen to have, you know, uh, uh, t- to make sure we don't fall in the trap of having a medical school that is very medically focused. Yeah. Um, not, not that you know, I'm, I'm a medical <laughs> practitioner. I'm not, I'm not saying that that that, that um, medical culture is 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 bad or anything. Not at all. Uh, it's it's kind of the foundation of medical schools, but it's it becomes richer when you get uh, cross disciplinary influences on um, medical research and medical education. Yeah. Um, and so having having a, a very active and vibrant um, uh, department um, that runs the masters of public health is pretty vital. You know, when I set up the faculty and we didn't have academic departments or what other universities called schools, we thought I thought quite long and hard about the name of the department we should create, and we ended up with the Department of um, Health Systems and Populations, rather than a school of pub- or Department mm-hmm. of Public Health. Yeah. And I, I did that because, you know, I wanted to emphasize the, the, a bit more the breadth of the, of the, of the system nature of, um, of that whole discipline area. Yeah. Um, and populations, I think, also brings in the concept of, of pub- the public or society in thinking about health. Mm. I think there's a danger in, in, in educating medical students that you focus too much on the, on the, the the care of an individual person with a health problem, which is absolutely vital, and that's, yeah, absolutely. that's kind of eighty percent of what most medical practitioners do is they're thinking about the care of the person who comes to them with some sort of distress, who who needs uh, caring, and uh, and that's vital. And as a, as a an academic institution, it's our responsibility to educate our our medical students to be effective and and capable carers of individuals but um, one of the things we wanted to do in our, in our MD program was to ensure they also understood that they work within a system yeah. and that's why we, we, I thought it was important that the name of the department included the word system. Um, uh, so, so public health, you know, however you define that, that very cross-disciplinary field that includes, you know, the understanding of diseases across populations, but that's a even that is a very narrow part of public health. Mm-hmm. You know, really, health leadership, um, health systems, health promotion, um, understanding you know that health occurs within a social environment and how yeah, and how, the, how the social uh, 
<laughs> and, and, and the politics of society influence health. I mean, I think, you, you know, there's so many examples of, of politics affecting health much greater than Definitely. infections. And mm. that's exactly what I drew mean, me to yeah, public health. You only have to look at <laughs> the, yeah, the obesity epidemic. Uh, oh, exactly. You know, if, if, if sugar was like lead, if people if people thought about sugar, like they think about lead, yeah. then sugar would be banned. Like lead was banned from petrol. Yeah. Adding huge amounts of sugar to food and putting them in cardboard boxes and on supermarket shelves would be considered illegal. In the same way that it's illegal to put lead into petrol, because we know that lead is a toxic component in our environment. But the politics of doing that with sugar, you know, as an example. So the politics. Uh, of health, and, and I think um, the, these are the kind of things that the medical students and doctors and academics working within a, within a faculty of medicine and health sciences need to think about and need to have at the forefront of their thinking if they're really thinking about the health of the, popu of the population. Definitely. That's an excellent answer. Yeah. Damian, do you have any other questions? Um, well, I know um, Emily mentioned earlier that you studied in Harvard Medical School. Um, I was wondering what is the benefit of kind of having different contexts for learning um, and particularly overseas? Yeah, so I went, I went to one of the research labs at Harvard Medical School uh, in Boston to do what's called a postdoc or a postdoctoral research period. So after I'd done my PhD, I wanted to continue doing science. Um, when I was doing my, I mean, medical education is not a particularly um, a deep training in scientific method or science, you know, to become an independent mm. uh, researcher. And so when I was doing my PhD, I effectively took time out of clinical practice. And then also my postdoc, I wasn't doing clinical work when I was in Boston. So it was really uh, a period of time where I was intensely focusing on, on, uh, on being a scientist, okay. on, on medical research in, yeah. in a research laboratory. Uh, not all postdocs like it. Often people who are doing clinical research can combine clinical work with their research or public health research while they're doing work in public health. But, but this was you know, quite an intense focus period. I think for that sort of research, it's very valuable to go to a very well-funded, very um, prestigious laboratory. Um, they have resources that you know, a lot of Australian laboratories don't have. Although one of the things you realise when you go overseas is you actually realise the quality of Australian medical research is actually very high. Yeah, yeah. And you actually realise that actually they're not like good, they just got a bit more money and a bit <laughs> more facilities and uh, they have networks and yeah, so when they exactly. send the paper off to a journal, uh, it seems to get accepted much more easily than when we send papers <laughs> off to the same journal. That's really good advice. <laughs> we need to build our networks. <laughs> Absolutely, and I think um, building networks is really critical uh, if you want to be a successful academic. Yeah. Um, so you can do the greatest research, but if you don't go and talk about it at conferences um, and you don't get to meet the people mm. you know that are interested in your kind of research, when you put your research grant in, they look at a name, they don't know who that name is, but exactly. if they've met you at a conference, they think, oh yeah, that, I met that person, they yeah. actually, yeah, they're really interesting. Oh. And then they start reading your grant with a kind of renewed, a renewed interest rather yeah. than a job to do, oh, I've got to review yeah. this grant, <laughs> and the other you can 10 put a grants I've got to review. Um, networking is a really important part of being a successful um, scientist or researcher. Mm. Um, and 
and you can only network so far in a little country like Australia mm. when, you, when mm. research is global. And so um, are we doing anything here at Macquarie to work, um, I guess, across um, international borders? Well, yeah, th- th- this, is, this is part of what we've done with um, particularly our medical program, but also our MPH. Um, maybe if I could talk about the medical program. We yeah, absolutely. In, in, that starts next year in 2018. Uh, it's, uh, you know, and, and I'd been involved in, in innovation in medical education in my last job across the town at the other university I worked for. Um, we'd done some innovative things and 15 years later I thought well where's the next area of innovation in medical education because if you look around the world medical education programs have different bits of innovation but there's more sameness than difference. Yeah. Um, we wanted to be ambitious, it's one of the values we have in this, in this organisation um, and we wanted to design a program that was future focused rather than because our graduates are going to practice you know, 10 years from when we start accepting yeah. them. It's always hard to look ahead 10 years. It's I think it's easy to look back 10 years. And in 2007, smartphones were starting to be around, but they, you know, uh, so think about smartphones and how they've changed Western society mm. and mm. the developing world. So you know that in 10 years' time, there's going to be something even more disruptive that we can't even see. I hope it's a hoverboard. <laughs> <laughs> so it's hard to predict the future but the few things that I uh, I thought would be important in medical education I thought that we needed to prepare as I said before students who are competent as individual practitioners but also know that they're part of a system and have some skills to work within a system so they needed some understanding of systems they needed to understand health systems and they needed um, capabilities like teamwork and reflective practice so that they could work effectively uh, with other people the, to develop emotional intelligence which I think yeah. is the most important thing for effective components of a system to work. Mm-hmm. That was the first thing systems thinking. The second was digital capability so you only have to look at banking to see how banking has changed from a face-to-face mm. activity mm. to a pr- predominantly digital activity now, medicine won't go that far, but I'm sure digital technology and treating patients remotely will be an important part of the future. And so we wanted to have learning in our program that made our students capable of that. So that was the second future kind of focus thing. And the third was that um, the world, we've been saying the world is globalised for a while, but it is increasingly globalised if you look at the transnational migration of health professionals. Mm. Australia's been is still importing a lot of health professionals which you know you can talk about the ethics of that when we're taking people away from where they were educated, mm. bringing them to Australia to practice here. There's something inequitous about that but regardless of that issue there's a lot of doctors and nurses and health professionals who who work not necessarily where they were trained and so when you think about medical education why don't we build into our medical education some understanding of the rest of the world, other systems of the world? And so we wanted to have a significant international component in our education program. And when we looked at the the data about that, basically over the last 30 years, at least in the US, UK and Australia, 
the number of medical students who do an international um, or study abroad part in their medical degree has gone up from a, a, a tiny minority, about 5%, up to about more than 30%. And that's been entirely student-initiated, bas mm. basically through the student elective. Now, I think medical faculties have got a responsibility to put some quality assurance around that program and to structure it and to make it a core part of the program rather than an elective. Uh, because there's a lot of evidence that it's beneficial. Beneficial mm. for the student, it's got educational benefits. It's actually also, there's evidence that it's beneficial for society because people, who, students who have those experiences are more likely to um, focus on public health. They're more likely to do an MPH. <laughs> They're more likely. Excellent. <laughs> they're more likely to work in underserved areas when, regardless of where they end up working. Mm. Um, and so there's clear benefits of of that. So I want to design a program that actually includes a significant part of of, of the program uh, at, at a different part of the world. And so when we looked at doing that, we said, well, what is a different part of the world that is different enough from Australia or or the US? Um, but still of, of good enough quality that it would provide a, a high quality clinical learning experience. And so we chose India because it has international standard healthcare. It's a completely different culture. They have huge challenges in providing um, health to more than a billion people. Yeah. Um, a rapidly expanding middle class. Uh, it's an English speaking, country in many ways at least professionally in their in their medical yeah. system they have many languages but their doctors and nurses generally communicate through English um, and so um, we investigated could we partner with a high quality hospital network and that's what we've done in the, in the MD and all students will, will do that we think that will will provide an international perspective, a global health perspective, a public health perspective, uh, and particularly improving their, their responsiveness to their cultural responsiveness, which is important if they practice in a multicultural society like Australia. Yeah, absolutely. So just from the pure public health perspective, um, those sort of public health placements have been very much the domain of of MPHs, they haven't been the domain of medical programs. Yeah. So um, we think that's an ambitious agenda, but uh, I guess we'll. It's an experiment. The study <laughs> next year, we will see. But uh, that's one way we've embedded public health into our medical program. Yeah, I think that sounds fantastic. I look forward to watching it grow. Yeah, really interesting. Um, I might just ask, I'm just conscious of time, so I'm going to ask a selfish question if that's okay. I did warn <laughs> you. <laughs> um, and I guess I'm just wondering about any advice you might have for like young academics like myself when we're trying to navigate academia. Do you have any tips or um, obviously networking is a huge one. Um, yeah, I guess any tips around, you know, learning how the university works or anything really <laughs> look I think um, it's hard to generalize it's hard to general to give general advice because every every person is different and so I don't think there's any magic pudding that, it, that you should follow in your five, key, six, six. I want it. <laughs> um, you know there's a range of things I think that um, can help a successful pathway I think you should you should be values based. Mm. 
we very strongly values-based as an organisation uh, and, and because I think values builds a culture uh, and that uh, if, you've got a, if you have a very positive culture in your organisation, you attract good people. You attract good people, they attract more good people. Mm-hmm. Um, you avoid a lot of uh, interpersonal problems, which can be a terrible destroyer of good people and make good mm-hmm. people leave. Yeah. Um, and if you have a good culture, then you, when I say good, you know, you have a culture where people are collaborative, where they are caring and they work with integrity, uh, then young people are more likely to be mentored, they're more likely to be given opportunities. Um, and, and and so building that over time I think is really important. So values is important as an organisation. I think personally if you have a set of values, uh, you can work out what they are. I have obviously my own personal values, but they're more than just feel good things, they're actually values determine how you actually spend your time. So if you value relationships, you will spend your time having coffee with people. Mm-hmm. If you value um, productivity, you will spend your time you know, being productive, however that's defined. But I think if you have a set of values, that, that provides a better way of guiding what's important to you consciously than subconsciously, otherwise you tend to you know, you, 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 your activity tends to be a bit more random. Yeah, that's very good generalizable advice. <laughs> <laughs> that's like one of the best bits of advice. Sorry to everyone else that I've interviewed. That's really good advice. <laughs> and it's something I think for myself that I have values, but I've never sat down to define them. I think that's really useful. Um, I have one more question, but before we finish up, Damiana, do you have any final yes. thoughts? Um, one of the key points that has been coming out in really impressive speakers in the MPH is leadership um, from clinici- clinicians in MPH. And I think... Um, they have the coalface experience of um, public health issues um, and the politics you were talking about before. So how can we encourage leadership from clinicians in public health? Because that's been a lacking aspect. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's really, um, it's a really good question. Um, and I think, I, I think it gets back to, to ensuring that um, you know, our, our, our leadership structures and our committees, you know, have cross-disciplinary representation. They're not too monocultural. When I say monocultural, as in the same sort of um, <coughs> medical leaders. Uh, we, we need a range of medical leaders um, that have medical degrees, that have biomedical degrees, that have public health qualifications. You get a much richer um, uh, discussion if you have a range of a range of perspectives in the same way you know the whole diversity um, agenda on committees on boards at the leadership levels of organizations in terms of whether that's gender diversity or whatever diversity you're talking about it applies the same uh, to, to a, a, you know having a cross-disciplinary perspective into into a medical and health sciences faculty Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your help today, Damiana. It's been lovely. And I'm sure we'll um, see you on more interviews to come. Um, And I'm just going to wrap up with the final question that I always ask everyone, uh, which is, is there a favourite book or something you've read that's really influenced your thinking or the way you've thought about the world, inspired you, or just made you laugh? You can say that too. (laughs) Yeah, no, actually, I'm going to look at it because it's sitting on my bookshelf over there. Uh, I mean, probably one of the most inspiring books I've read in the last two decades is uh, The Innovator's Dilemma by Clay Christensen, who's a, 
a uh, Harvard uh, Business School professor. And I had the privilege to actually attend a week-long course on leadership in healthcare back in the early 2000s that, that, was, con- that was facilitated by, by Clay Christensen and, uh, and Liz Armstrong, who's a professor in Harvard Medical School. And uh, so his books on, you know, which, you know, are subtitled How Great Companies Go Broke by Doing Everything Correctly or Everything Right, uh, you know, at the time was very revolutionary. It was the whole concept of disruption, how, and, you know, he, as, as an academic, all, all his data is based on analysing companies that fail and, and companies that, that succeed and what are the factors. and. And it really, um, you know, someone who likes change, and most people don't like change, so I recognise that I'm an outlier on the population. <laughs> but it provided a very good theoretical uh, and practical understanding of, of how change occurs and why, and the predicting the future, you know, looking for the what he calls a, a disruptive innovation uh, or, or some sort of change that would, that would actually... Um, Move the goalposts completely in whatever whatever industry, um, and and it's it's a very useful way I think uh, of thinking about um, organisations uh, uh, about future focused future gazing. Yeah, so that's the book that I would say has is, is been one of the most interesting books I've read in the last two That sounds really interesting. That sounds like a good read. Mm-hmm. I do read them all. Um, <laughs> I did get burnt the other week when someone um, told me their favourite book is War and Peace, so that's now on my list. <laughs> <laughs> uh, excellent. Um, do you have any final thoughts or messages you'd like to get out to the world before we wrap up? Well, only that I'm not really a public health person, but you know, I guess if you if if you take public health as as I've defined it as incredibly cross-disciplinary, I think probably anyone could say that they've got an interest in public health. It's it's really how you look at the world. I think defines public health rather than necessarily um, what you've studied or where you've come from. Yeah, uh, and and I think that could be a message that really, if you want to understand public health, it's the way. You look at the world, mm-hmm. and obviously you're looking at the health of the world, but not just the health. I mean, as I said, so many things influence the health. Uh, three of the most important things for humans are health, education, well, four things, health, education, food, and shelter. Um, in, the w- in the developed world, we spend a lot of time thinking about education and health. When I was in India, the last time I was talking to one of the politicians there, and he was going for re-election, and I said to him, well, you know, what are your chances? He said, well, in India, if you want to get re-elected, the only things you have to guarantee are power and water. Oh, so, yeah, it shows you the, 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 inequities. the, 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 the difference in, in, in what is important. But if you think, you know, food and, and shelter or power and, and water uh, are important in some parts of the world, but, but education and health are other kind of common things that, that humans think about. Um, so we're all interested in health. Excellent. Well, I think you've just wrapped up the um, the ethos of this podcast very well because <laughs> that is exactly the way we think about public health here. Uh, well, thank you very much again, Damiana, for helping me. Thanks, and thank you very much for your time, Patrick. We really appreciate it. And we'll speak to you next time on Stories in Public Health. <laughs>